Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. The fuck? Wait, 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 wait. This wait. one alone. So we're this going to feels seg- like the. Go ahead, Jason. I was going to say we're going to seg from the intro music into this discussion of the word segue. I mean, we could talk about if you want oh, to wow. have this as the start of the ep. That's fine. But yes, Segway should not well, apparently, well, apparently. Mr. Merriam-Webster. That's how you spell Segway. You you just spell it like Seg. Se- segway hmm. and Segway. You're saying you pronounce that word? Oh, listen, are we listen, just confused no, about the spelling? You, everybody be quiet for a second. I think, I think that's the you crux be, of it. Everybody, shut up for a second. Segway. Segway. Come on. Aaron, were okay, you seriously? Well, Aaron, uh, well. <laughs> you, I take back everything I said about you being a professional. <laughs> oh, and now this is recorded too. Well, look, I don't. Uh, I'd always thought that it was pronounced or spelled like the, the vehicle. Peg. <laughs> wow. uh, I blame whoever invented the Segway, who I believe died. Uh, he died on a Segway, right? Didn't he now, segue think, off a cliff? I think that's actually not <laughs> actually true. Uh, I oh, think I believe what? he died of like heart disease uh, or oh, something like yeah, related to. That he died you're thinking, yeah. you're thinking, you're thinking, p- petard. You're thinking of Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia is the one who died in a motorcycle that's crash. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Com- yeah. You're thinking of Lawrence like, of Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> I was that, um, naturally. I was thinking of Lawrence of Arabia as I look. The, am. the further we can get from my segue, uh, misunderstanding. Sorry, wait. What's the segue? I don't think that's how you pronounce that word. Okay, that's actually so, that's just a vehicle. I think what you're looking at the word you're looking for is seg. We're segue. The word, the the word, Jason, the I would word, like you to introduce the word. The, podcast, the word please. I'm. I don't know about the word you're looking for, but the word I'm looking for is thank you. Very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. You can get tickets and merch and find other cool ways to support the Trilon. Uh, if you're going to go to a movie, wear your mask. We're at full capacity, but we are at still a local mask mandate and no food, drink, etc. in the theater. My name is Jason Daphnis. I can't seem to do anything without crying about it, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and I'd. God damn it, Monroe, you made me scratch. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. We'd be in better shape if we didn't jerk off so much. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry, and that is the quote that I chose. <laughs> uh, my name's Aaron. Uh, you can uh, find me on Twitter at RB, please, but don't worry, I can drive. Okay. I did the uh, social before yeah. the yeah, yeah wow, just, that, that threw me <laughs> off. You're not on Twitter. If, if wow. you could edit that and and uh and, and the, seg? the segue thing. Yeah, sure. if you could edit those just you'll handle yeah. the post. Yeah. I'm gonna make you sound really solid and good. Um folks, before we begin this episode, uh continuing our series on Peter Bogdanovich currently playing at the Trilon, uh we thought we'd take a moment to uh, commemorate and remember a um a staple of the Minneapolis movie scene. It's currently unfolding the situation in Uptown right now, but uh supposedly the Uptown Theater uh is 
agree, is settling to a, a relocation agreement uh, per an eviction notice sent by the landlord company uh, to Landmark Theaters, the, um, I believe, leaser, lessor, I don't know the legal term, uh, for the Uptown Theater at the corner of Hennepin and Lagoon. Um, so we just wanted to take a minute. It's thematically appropriate, I suppose, but we wanted to take a minute to uh, sort of commemorate and and remember uh, sort of the, the experience of the Uptown, what it, what it was, and uh, maybe hopefully what it will be in the future. But um, fellas, you, got, you, you brought this up. Anybody, anybody got thoughts? Yeah, I would just like to, to point out really quick also that what a load of absolute bullshit that is and how fucked up and, and terrible our system is and, and how terrible all landlords are. Um, and, and also, uh, real quick, just how terrible the reporting surrounding this is. Um, I don't know what you guys read, but in all of the uh, reporting that I read on this, uh, almost as much about the Uptown Theater itself and what a institution it is. I, just about as much was spent on the idea or like the fact that they apparently owe quite a lot in, in back taxes and um, in uh, missed payments to their landlord, which is a really absurd way to frame this situation, given that for the last 18 months, they were not able to be a revenue source. So so framing this idea as if like the, the uptown had been um, hemorrhaging cash or that it wasn't sustainable for so long when they were not able to make any money for the last 18 months is a really cowardly way to, to frame that. And I think it's a really cowardly thing for a landlord to exploit. Um, we all knew this was going to happen, right? We all knew that under capitalism, like obviously, uh, and without government support or additional government support, landlords were going to start exploiting the fact that we all had to stay at home and we all couldn't be making money. But it really, really hurts and hits home to see it happening to an institution like the Uptown Theater. Um, And I'm furious about it. And I I guess a lot of people are probably furious about it too, but it absolutely sucks ass. And I do not want to see it happen to a beloved Minneapolis institution. Yeah, to clarify, the uh, leasing company on behalf, or sorry, that uh, that put the uptown in the spot it's in, or, or pays taxes and and dues, um, has not apparently. The same thing happened to a, oh, I'm not sure the uh, another theater in the cities, right? The Adina Cinema, um, which right. also has uh, suffered the same fate at the hands of its uh, leasing company. Um, and uh, yeah, just again, Harry's point is well taken that uh, there's a lot of really poor uh, reporting and contextualization around a lot of this. Um, of course, this story, I believe, broke yesterday. So things are still kind of happening in it. Uncertain how things are going to land, because uh, I believe neither none of these companies have really responded for comment to any reporters inquiries. But uh, this is more of a I, I think this is this can be a moment, too, for us to like remember what, what we've seen there. I uh, sort of just recall I was really looking forward to getting back to the uptown, frankly, after, uh, you know, a year and a half of not going to movies at all. Um, I figure let's let's get into that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess my two cents, I'm quite positive that my experience uh, that I'm about to lay out is not unique um, to anybody here or like anybody who might be listening to this, like they can maybe relate. But I mean, I, I didn't grow up in the Twin Cities. I grew up in Minnesota and I came here uh, to Minneapolis for college. And as I studied film a little more intensely and like kind of pushed my boundaries a little bit, uh, the Uptown Theater and the Lagoon as well uh, became 
it feels weird to use the term formative, but I guess since I was kind of in my like adolescent uh, adolescence of like learning about film and the institution of cinema, like the Uptown Theater is uh, invaluable for something like that. And not just because it shows great, uh, great films, uh, obviously, um, if you've been there, you, you kind of know what their selection is like, um, but also like, like offering different outlets uh, for viewing film. Um, the the Room and Rocky Horror Picture Show showings are a great example of that, just kind of offering different avenues for getting exposed to film and, and taking in film in uh, sort of non-traditional ways. Um, the midnight screenings uh, were a staple uh, for us as well in, in brighter times. Um, so I guess, as Jason said, like everything here is kind of unfolding and the reporting is less than stellar. Um, and we still have a lot to learn about the situation and hopefully the situation will change. Um, but I, I guess if you can take one thing from this, uh, you know, support the, uh, especially, especially artistic outlets, but the outlets in general that you, um, I don't know, that means something to you, you know, uh, like we talk about that this is a Trilon driven podcast and the uptown theater, um, is not, an experience like going there is not uh, an experience that replaces what you get from the trial. And I think the experiences are very complementary to one another. Um, so I don't know, uh, j- just being mindful of that is, is probably valuable for all of us, I think. Yeah, I, I think I have kind of a similar story with the Uptown Theater. I first started going there in college uh, when I was living at the U of M or kind of around the U of M campus um, and the area of Uptown is someone who like didn't own a car and, and traveled to grew up in St. Cloud and then went to the U of M um, in Minneapolis and, and to kind of St. Paul a little bit uh, for college. Uptown felt like a journey. Like this was before this weird as hell to say, but this is before like rideshare was a thing really. Like if I wanted to get out there, we had to take uh, the bus, which I love the public transit system, but it was like over an hour from where I lived at, wherever I lived any of the years in college. So it was like a journey. Um, but I did go out there a number of times in college uh, to, to the lagoon and the uptown theater. Um, and I just remember a bunch of like new movies coming out that I saw there. I had really great experience watching a more. Uh, I remember, um, I remember seeing uh, a bunch of like midnight showings, uh, which we've kind of touched on, but you know um, for someone who was getting more into films and maybe wasn't, as far down that path to appreciate what the trilon was doing. Um, a lot of the midnight showings that the Uptown Theater uh, uh, was kind of putting on was, a, I think, a great entryway, maybe a, a bit surface level, but still like a great entryway into those kind of uh, uh, cult films and like B-movies and, and just kind of weirder cinema that you could allow you to kind of penetrate even deeper into to weird movies and whatnot. Um, so had a lot of great times there. And it was also a, a really beautiful theater, uh, especially after some of the renovations and whatnot. Um, I'm sure some people had takes on when it was better or whatnot, but like it, it was a really beautiful theater that um, was kind of weirdly laid out with like the upstairs bar and whatnot. Um, but like, I, I will miss going to get bulldog cocktails uh, for like midnight showings. Um, and just like, I guess the, like the main thing for me is that like, there's a lot of good memories around the theater. There are people who are employed by this theater and, and obviously, you know, kind of thoughts go out to them as well. Um, there's kind of another aspect we haven't touched on that, like the Uptown Theater is owned by like a, a larger company uh, called Landmark Theaters that like, I don't know the business relationship between them and the, the uh, landlord in this case. Uh, that's like all business stuff that like, I'm sure someone's to blame. But like, for me, it's like, 
this is just like a bummer, especially with like pandemic ending and, uh, you know, people who have been impacted by the pandemic, movie theaters, uh, uh, all sorts of like service based places that couldn't operate uh, as they normally would. Like they were kind of let down by the government uh, uh, and, and without any source of like formal funding. Um, so that sucks, but like I had a ton of great memories of the Uptown Theater. I hope something ends up happening in that space. Uh, and I hope that, uh, you know, the, the theater scene in Minneapolis uh, keeps moving forward. So excellently put. Um, I just figure we can go into what was the last thing you guys remember seeing at the Uptown? I know for me it was Portrait of a Lady on Fire on February 22nd of 2020. That, that was it. Yeah, I um right before we started recording, I was going through my Ticket Stub album and what I landed on, and hopefully this is correct. I think Harry can probably correct me because he was at uh, two of the the most recent showings. I think my two recent showings, um, Emma, uh, was the last film I saw there, and then Portrait of a, a Lady on Fire was the uh, I guess second most recent. I want to say the the midnight showing that I saw there last um, was Princess Mononoke. The day we did the um the Trilon, like that all day marathoner and then went to princess Mononoke afterwards. What a fucking day, man. Like what, what a treat. Sincerely. I'm I'm looking through my letterbox and I'm trying to, I am. It's, it it is weird to look over a letterbox and you just see like, Oh, I remember exactly where I was when I saw that. And I'm like looking around that time. And I think, I think it might've been like the princess Mononoke. I don't know if I saw kind of a current showing. I see like little women, but I think I saw that like the lagoon, um, but yeah, like a lot of great memories, Princess Mononoke. Um, uh, we saw like Ghost in the Shell there. It's like a lot of, a lot of great movies at the Uptown Theater. Yeah. The midnight showings were what I'll remember most. Um, it was always like the anime that pulled me toward it. I know Harry and I saw Perfect Blue there at a midnight showing, uh, Totoro, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, and then Belladonna of Sadness. We didn't talk about it on this podcast, but, uh, famed midnight showing, um, that felt more like a trial on movie, frankly, but, uh, just, yeah, no, no place quite like it. Mind game. Harry and I saw mind game, yeah. uh, which is like, God I don't damn, think a perfect movie, but it's like the weirdest shit. Yes. It is the best weird, uh, midnight movie, uh, beautiful like, movie. To a rules, right. So like to be yeah. able to yeah. see his, uh, like one of his first films was really a treat. Yeah. Um, I also, um, I got to take Charlie to, um, Kiki's delivery service, which is her favorite movie on her birthday for the, the midnight release. Oh, so like man. A, lot, a lot of really great memories, um, from that place. It really hurts, uh, this one. I, I, last thing I'll say on my end is that I, uh, I got to see, maybe it's a bit risque, but I, I saw, um, I saw the room there, uh, very high. And I had a great time and I unfortunately fell. I think maybe I've told the story, but I, I fell asleep in like the last like 20 minutes. And I was always like, I would love to go see the room again. And then they stopped showing the room probably for some like contract thing. They had to pay more than they wanted to because it was a pretty full up theater. But I was always telling myself, like, I would love to see the room in a theater again because like I'm not like big Internet Mimi, like, oh, the room kind of guy. But like it was legitimately great and I couldn't knock it. Uh, and now I won't get to do that at the uptown theater. Uh, and the other thing is that I'm, I'm not a big fan of Rocky horror picture show, which is not for me, but like I did want to see that in the live setting at least once. And now I got to find somewhere else to do it. So that's uh, a bummer. Yeah. That's actually kind of a good transition, right? Because um, when we saw mind game, you lived over there, Aaron in uptown and you walked there. And I also at that time was living close enough that I could walk there 
Um, now Cody is the only one of us who's still sort of carrying the torch of Uptown. Uh, shout outs to Cody. But I, it, I am, I am the last picture show. Right. Uh, but I, so it's sort of, um, sadly and, and terribly symbolic of, of both like the, the time period in our lives and this movie itself, right. That like it, insofar as sort of before the Trilon, we had the Uptown in, in a lot of ways. Um, we, we went to, we used to go to more movies there probably than we did, um, the, the Trilon. And then once we sort of discovered the Trilon, we, we transitioned, but it was sort of our, you, you had both characterized it and I would also characterize it as sort of a, um, uh, like a foundational and, and sort of like a catalyst type of theater, right. Where like, we were just starting to get into, uh, a heavier interest in films and, um, the Uptown helped facilitate that and it helped facilitate our friendships and, um, it provided a, a really nice community spot to do those things. And, um, it's, yeah, it's just heartbreaking to see it go. Yeah. It was like a, I remember seeing in college, like classic, like uh, dude in college getting into movies around that time. Like I remember watching in the dorms, uh, Tree of Life and be like, yeah, Tree of Life rocks. And then like, I'm going to travel to the Uptown Theater to see To the Wonder with like a friend of mine. And then we went and we were like, that was not as good as Tree of Life. But I feel a bit like a film fan now uh, traveling to see a Terrence Malick movie. Uh, oh, yeah. so, yes. It was, yes. That like represents the Uptown theater for me in a weird way, but uh, yeah. Uh, rip to the Uptown theater again. Hope everybody who, you know, was employed there and, and is impacted by that uh, is able to land on their feet. So um, it's a, it's a bummer. And less realistically rip to Sam's theater uh, because this week's film is uh, The Last Picture Show, 1971 uh, film by Peter Bogdanovich, uh, playing at the trial line as part of an ongoing... Oh, wait. Will this be playing? Oh, man. Our schedule is going yep, all the way. Okay. Yes. Be there. Be there. Uh, I'll let Aaron take it away, because I'm sort of running myself into the ground. Hit it. Yeah. Uh, Last Picture Show, 71, directed by Peter Bogdanovich, as Jason mentioned. Uh, This was Bogdanovich's third directorial credit. Uh, It was released after 68's Targets, which we talked about and recorded on. Uh, It was also uh, the same year and after uh, the documentary directed by John Ford. Uh, uh, which came out uh, in, in 71, which with Last Picture Show. Um, Last Picture Show is based on the 1966 Larry McMurtry novel of the same name. Uh, it focuses on uh, Annarine, uh, a small town in Texas, uh, specifically focusing on the life of Sonny Crawford, played by Timothy Bottoms, who is a high school senior who breaks up with his girlfriend and begins to have an affair uh, with the older wife of his gym teacher. Um, the wife is Cloris Leachman, uh, uh, playing Ruth Popper. He is friends with another senior, Dwayne Jackson, played by Jeff Bridges, who is dating the so-called prettiest girl in town, uh, J.C. Farrow, who is played by Sybil Shepard. Film follows Sonny and Dwayne as the melancholy nature of uh, post-high school life slowly begins to set in, uh, and these characters begin to wonder about their place in a town and a life uh, that is in decline and that offers them no uh, significant opportunities for their future. Uh, The Last Picture Show was a massive critical and commercial success. The film's budget was about $1.3 million. It made back uh, almost $30 million at the box office. Uh, Additionally, the film was nominated for numerous awards, including eight Academy Awards, uh, Best Picture, Best Director, Sporting Actor, Sporting Actress, 
you name it. Um, both Jeff Bridges and Ben Johnson uh, were nominated for supporting actor. Ben Johnson winning for his role of Sam the Lion. That is the correct choice. Uh, both Ellen Burstyn and Cloris Leachman were nominated for supporting actress, uh, with Leachman winning for the role of Ruth Popper. That is also the correct choice. If you're saying, hey, that cast sounds pretty fucking stacked, you are correct. Uh, there's a lot of like big actors and actresses and like even upcoming ones uh, in this film. Um, this was also nominated for uh, screenplay and cinematography. I realize that I've been ranting for quite a bit, but uh, uh, kind of last thing here, it was also uh, yet another film in the Trilons, uh, or it is yet another film in the Trilons film series on Polly Platt. Um, this film is uh, an interesting look. Uh, it's an interesting film to look at in regard to Platt's career for a few different reasons. If you didn't listen to our Targets episode, go listen to that. Um, but specifically with this film, the first and most obvious uh, and most documented reason to kind of consider this film um, is that this was the film that corresponded with the end of her uh, relationship to Bogdanovich, who uh, would leave her during the production of the film uh, for starring actress Sybil Shepard. Um, Platt was then kind of understandably put into an incredibly awkward situation of having to kind of choose whether to leave the film or to continue, continue seeing it through despite the nature, extremely awkward nature of the situation. Um, this film is also important because it highlights some of the ways in which Hollywood uh, and the entertainment industry at large could be, um, one, incredibly sexist, uh, and two, unfair to people, uh, often women and racial minorities, who didn't kind of neatly fit into the film's film industry's crediting structure. Um, Platt was credited as the film's designer, but she also worked as a costume designer. She helped cast the film. Ironically, she helped with the casting of Sybil Shepard. Um, she even kind of largely helped convince Bogdanovich to adapt the book uh, to film. So she was very instrumental to the creation of the film, um, yet kind of isn't given the credit that she deserves uh, specifically on this film, which is considered one of the best movies ever made. So um, Jason, that's what I got as a very rambling long intro. No, that wonderful. was very good, Aaron. Yeah. Just so you know, that was great. Thank Especially you. for a movie so difficult to. My Venmo is the same head. as my social media. So, uh, uh, but for McShitter62 and no, Yahoo. Come on. I'm not on Twitter, but I am on Cash It. No, I'm kidding. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for that wonderful, wonderful summary. Um, my thoughts about this movie are that I'm not going to be able to probably get to all my thoughts about this movie. Uh, it is, it, it sparks a lot of, uh, ideas and emotion and, uh, I don't know, just like tangent thoughts that come and go. It is an absolute text. Um, I, I love that its setting, uh, is like this, post-war nowhere uh texas i i like it evokes as aaron said while we were watching it evokes damnation from one previous episode of try love um except that like there's a little bit less of the landscape shots in this movie uh it very much is like tight focused on the characters that is like a through line is that this movie is focused on characters rather than plots more comings and goings than events which is another thing that i loved about it um i was reminded of the and i'd forgotten the name because it's not an actual Japanese term. It's a Westernized term of a Japanese concept called Shomengeki. Um, the movies of Yasujiro Ozu fall into this rough genre, just, you know, more lives and characters than action and events uh, being depicted. And I feel like this movie would fit into that general mold. If you found enough good examples within it, um, there's like a, just a deep, deep sadness that pervades this whole movie um, that only really starts to hit once you get right near the end. Uh, everything is kind of like, oh, that sucks. Oh, that sucks. But you're expecting like uh, a, a third wind or something else to come through and sweep it and, you know, make it all make sense or make it all feel better. And it, it doesn't. It's that's part of why this movie would be very hard, I think, to go back to um, to watch again for me. Anyway, it's like just very uh, soaked with emotion, very like wildly tragic. 
um, even in its like lighter hearted moments, uh, there is, um, sorry, I have, I have, I have a lot of thoughts about how we start talking about, um, you know, to what end some of these pieces fall in place, the, you know, focus on characters rather than place or, uh, or plot or events and sort of it's, um, you know, very dour look at, you know, the parallels between generations and what they value, where they can find themselves, et cetera. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm going to let, uh, Cody take it away. I have no great segue, uh, but this is, this is what Sorry, I, got. I think you mean seg. I believe. Oh that's shit. Ah, yeah. Yeah. I forgot. Um, uh, well, my seg is that, uh, Aaron or sorry, Cody should go first. Wow. Uh, well, well, thank you for the seg J seg. Um, it is I Cody Narvaseg, and yeah, I saw the last picture show one other time, something like nine years ago. And I don't think it made much of an impression on me then. And that has so much more to do with my perhaps comparative lack of film liter- literacy at the time. Um, I guess compared to now, as opposed to it, you know, not landing because the movie itself is ineffective or something. I do in fact think this is, uh, as it's been said, a very devastating, but also a very rich film. And I'm glad I got a sort of, um, easy spoon fed opportunity <laughs> to revisit it here in the Polly Platt series. Um, one thing I was thinking about, honestly, I don't know, or like, I don't pretend to know what it means for any given singular movie to be well-directed. You know, like I, I watched this movie and I think this cast top to bottom all gave anywhere from great to incredible to all time performances. And I think there are some beautifully composited shots uh, as well as some edits that by themselves create different visceral moods, depending on the situation and the folks whose specific onset tasks align with those things should obviously get the credit for those things. Um, Maybe it's something less concrete, like a, a perceived unity of those elements that plays into why I would think to myself, you know, oh, golly gee, Bogdanovich uh, directed the hell out of this, or, or golly gee, Polly Platt directed the ever-loving hell out of this, um, when that's usually not a remark I would gravitate toward, um, much less say out loud ever, uh, when reflecting upon a movie I saw. But that is something that I'm feeling right now. Like every shot and performance and lighting effect actually felt like it was playing off of everything else in a way that made me feel kind of more okay with taking a tour of this crusty dusty town and it's um mopey residence and eventually leaving it feeling like absolute dog shit um as a viewer I, I think in less capable hands it might feel you know i suspect it might feel gratuitous you know with how miserable the lives of these people can get and some of the beats might not feel as earned uh, but we definitely we get there i think in no small part again due to the collective performance uh, of this cast uh, many or, or maybe all of the greatest performances or most memorable ones from this movie stem from people who are, uh, are trapped and who effectively communicate or respond to their situation uh, i think for me ellen burston was perhaps my personal mvp she anchored a couple of really big marquee scenes uh, at least like my perception of it uh, where she's simultaneously you know, depressingly pragmatic and wistfully reflective. Um, Sybil Shepard was also great. Um, everybody was great, but Sybil Shepard was uh, a standout. And I especially loved how her character was lit in many of her scenes. It, it This might be weird. It felt to me like something similar, but maybe a different twist on how Grace Kelly's character was frequently displayed in Rear Window. Um, I thought of that exact specific example, Cody. <laughs> I, um, I, and I would love to delve into that, uh, later for sure. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it hit me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, 
I guess we're shouting out other filmmakers as well. Uh, Jason said, Ozu, I'm going a little more lowbrow. I got weird, like sensory blasts of link letter, uh, of like the hangout movie or even just a mood piece. It's just that the mood in question is like, as it's been said, a tremendous bummer. And it's in a place everyone is either trying to leave or is busy digging their grave in. And we start to consider, you know, what made it so they felt like they had to live and die here. You know, uh, and I'm sure there are lots of other things to talk about from this movie, uh, and I look forward to that. So I will uh, just for now drive my my clunker over to Harry's place to give him the mic. I just hope my truck makes it all the way there. I know Harry's got a nice car, so maybe he can meet me halfway. Um, I don't know if you can hear me driving up the road. Uh, uh, oh, I see you there. Um, maybe we can make this exchange. Uh, Harry, do I see you? Is that you? Yes, there? and thank you so much for pointing out my car. I earned uh, the money to pay for it roughnecking. Um, so I really, oh, yeah. it's, it's a big part of my personality. So I'm, I'm very appreciative that you shouted it out. Um, I really vibed with a lot of what Cody and Jason were saying here. It's really interesting to me that I also, I've seen this movie before. I actually watched it, Targets and Paper Moon, ironically, in quarantine a couple months ago. Um, this is one that really stuck with me since then, but I liked it much more watching it with friends and sort of seeing the impact that it had on all of us. Um, that being said, I... You know, it's it's almost a cliche to say this. I think this is one of the great like American pictures in in terms of telling the story of post World War II America. I think that like the way that it reframes the American dream and American small towns and what it means to be America in the twenty twentieth century and what it means to be an American in the in the twenty twentieth century is like maybe better depicted here and framed better than it is almost anywhere else. I think that like in terms of understanding things, this would absolutely be on the syllabus of any sort of American history or like American um, project that I would put together at least. Um, I, I just, I've been thinking about this movie and using it as a means to sort of like frame the way that I approach life and people, right. In, in the way that a lot of great works of art can help you do that. And I think for that reason, I really tremendously value this movie. Um, what Cody had said earlier, um, I think that this movie is almost the script in this film is almost superfluous um, because of how well directed and lit it is. Um, there are entire scenes that the visual storytelling is so well realized that there need not have been any dialogue. I'm thinking specifically of the scene where um, Sybil Shepherd's character, JC Farrow is seduced by slash seduces um, her uh, mother's, um, sort of like, uh, paramour. Yeah. yeah. Lover. Um, the, the lighting in that scene communicates so well that you could literally mute the, the TV and know exactly what was happening. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of different, um, scenes and it has an all time script, I think with some, with some monologues that are like, like absolutely decade defining, right? Like I think, um, Aaron, you had mentioned that, um, Sam, the lion was the right choice for Ben Johnson. That's absolutely right. He has an anchoring monologue in the, in the direct center of this movie. That is unbelievable. That like is, is absolutely jaw dropping in, in how affecting and moving and sad and, uh, reframing of an entire experience and people and place. Um, and I, I just like, I think that the humanist qualities at the heart of this movie and the way that it's able to carry those humanist qualities um, 
and package them up in all of its formalism and its narrative and its directing and its communication is just like maybe like some, some real cinema perfection. Like, I just think that it's like a, it's almost a cliche to say, but I really think that this is like one of the like ultimate American movies. And I think that it is doing that toward a very humanist message about how fundamentally there is a human experience, not even just an American experience, but of disillusionment that is defining of coming of age. And that in fact, disillusionment and, um, and the realization that your life is not going to be the way that you want it to be or thought it would be is the defining experience of being human. And what you do with that realization and that disillusionment it is actually what defines you as a person. Um, I think that that's a very powerful message that is very worth thinking about and very worth communicating. And I, you know, I mean, it's, this is, uh, it's, it's melodramatic, right? But like, this is one of the movies where I think like, oh, this made me a better person, <laughs> right? Like, like watching this movie and thinking about it and like, uh, like adopting its, uh, thesis and approach towards human interaction actually has the potential to make you a better human being, which is like maybe the best thing you can say about like art. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think this is a really good movie. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, don't have oh. a, I don't have a very good seg or segue. Um, what's that? Harry's riding a segue over to meet me to, to pass, right. to pass the baton. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, you could, you could probably just copy most of what Harry said and then paste it in this segment. Jason, please don't do that in editing. But, uh, yes, uh, I think this movie is, is kind of, uh, perfect. Um, I, I really liked targets, um, but I was really blown away by this movie. Uh, we talked quite a bit about the very intentional feeling, uh, of targets. Uh, this movie feels like that, but even more so, um, it feels even more like carefully crafted. I'm sure a lot of that is due to, uh, Polly Platt's contributions. Um, there's a lot here that that Harry kind of touched on about um, American mythology, uh, specifically around the idea of the West and American military power um, and what happens when that mythology is, is found to kind of no longer be true uh, or to potentially never really have been true at all. Um, although I think maybe a little bit of the former um, due to this, I think this film fits not only we talked about damnation. I think that's a, a, a great film to compare this to. I think Paris, Texas as well as kind of this, evolution of a Western. I think that it's kind of interesting in that manner. Um, and I, I found myself kind of thinking about a lot of those elements as I watched the movie. Um, but the, the truth is that I think those, those elements can kind of obscure the actual heart of this movie, which is in reality, uh, a very like deeply sympathetic, uh, portrayal of the residents of a town that has been kind yeah. of left behind while being sold this false image of, uh, a modernizing America. I think it's, it's maybe more fun as like a, 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 you know, film podcaster to look at some of those meta commentary aspects and they're certainly tied in, but, the, but this movie like really works by caring about its characters at its core. Um, as we mentioned, it feels like a classic, like specifically American work. Um, I think that there's a lot of like to kill a mockingbird in this movie. Uh, Sam the Lion feels like Adam wow. Um, yeah, the, the, the way that the film handles the character of Billy, uh, who is a, a mentally disabled boy, uh, who has a very tragic end near the end of the movie. Um, it feels like very deeply, deeply sympathetic. Uh, and so this movie feels like critical of American society without being cynical. Um, it kind of, uh, uh, takes, you know, kind of a modernizing America to charge without, 
uh, judging uh, the people who are kind of left behind by that too much. Um, and I think like the end result is like a, just a really uh, like beautiful film. Um, so yeah, good, good stuff. Uh, loved it. Me too. Uh, so one thing that we've all sort of mentioned thematically is that it's like Harry said that, um, you know, it's sort of the movie is uh, getting at the disillusionment, disillusionment that defines coming of age. And the way that I'm like putting that through my filter is that it's doing that. Like Aaron said, like, uh, compassionately, like not cynically, not critically or sorry, critically, but not, not cynically. It's doing that because it's seeing it from both ends, right? It's seeing it from like, you have basically two generations that are both, um, like grappling with the same set of circumstances, right? And they're sort of leaning on each other for support, even when they maybe don't think they are, even when they don't intend to be, did that stick out to anybody else that like marrying of the two, uh, basic generations portrayed in the movie and how that is sort of where it finds that common ground and how to tell that coming of age story. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. And I really, really liked Aaron's characterization. The way I would sort of like think about this is this is a movie that is really interested in transcending judgment specifically, right? Like I think that the, the first act of this movie almost is, is giving you reasons to judge each of these characters, right? Because they're all people who in their sort of pain and suffering and angst are doing really pretty terrible things to one another and to themselves. Um, but eventually as the, as we go on and as almost in a, in a move that mirrors real life, right. And all of its messy complications, like we learn so much more about these characters and all of their circumstances, even the characters who you would assume we wouldn't learn about, right? Like Sybil Shepherd's character's mom, for instance, is one of the best characters in the movie. And in any other movie, she would have not, she would have just been a symbol, right? Not a character. And I think that's true of like all, there are no symbolic characters in this movie, right? They're all characters. They're all people with, with deep compromised complications and who are suffering because of the lie that they've been told or that they've been telling themselves and the, the harshness of the realization to come, right. The, the dim futures that they all have to look forward to and their dim circumstances. Um, there's maybe one of my favorite lines in the entire movie, um, where Sybil Shepard, uh, her, uh, her mom, who, whose name escapes me because I suck. Can anybody help me out? Uh, the character's name, Lois Farrow, played Lois by Ellen Burstyn. Is Ellen that right? Burstyn. Yeah, of course. Um, she she says ab- about Sam the Lion that it's um, it's a terrible thing to to only meet one man who knows your worth, right? And I, I feel like that's like a great logline for the entire movie. And it's like this is this is what happens to people when their worth is not known, right? Um, and I think that, that presenting that central thesis, it, it creates so much universality of empathy, um, where we can see how all of these people are people who have been crushed by circumstances and who, who are people who have rich interior lives that are not being respected and that are being ground out of them by a tremendously traumatic and tremendously, um, uh, harsh reality and the way that that manifests is defining them in sort of terribly compromised ways but that is a tragedy it's not something to judge it's something to understand and the way that this movie approaches that with a curiosity and with a um a total lack of judgment in in favor of as we've noted this this compassion for understanding without without condoning or condemning the actions of these people 
really gives us this very unique insight into why they are the way they are and why they think the way they think. And in doing so, it it sort of expands the scope of what we're thinking about from these people and this town out to something that's a lot more universal and human, right? About how maybe in in one capacity or another, especially as time goes by, this is true of all of us, right? Like maybe maybe we are all people who are living consolation prizes for our lives, right? Like this is not the way we wanted to be. This is not the way we wanted things to go. And now we're here and that's the way it's going to be. And what you do with that is what actually sort of defines you as a person. And as this movie sort of ultimately states, like recognizing that and recognizing that that it happens to other people too and being tender towards those people and treating them as ends in, the, in and of themselves the way that um, our main character, Sonny, ends up um, treating uh, Ruth um, is is sort of where that ends up. And I just like, that is so affecting to me. And I think that it, it gets there exactly the way that Aaron Jason described it, right? Which is like, by having this total lack of judgment and total curiosity for exploring the interior places of these people, even when it leads to the horrible pain that we have to suffer to get through this movie. Yeah, um, really well said. And I think um, just to like, focus uh back on um ellis ellen burston's character um sorry i i flubbed a little there because uh chaco the the cat who's staying with me um decided to leap into my lap he, he's never done that before while recording so that's a nice change of pace um and a a, a brief n- nice shining light on this otherwise uh depressing conversation but i i think like a, a great like case study for examining like generational like not anti-judgment, but just like, like a push for, for understanding and like empathy is through uh, Lois Farrow's relationship with uh, her daughter, JC played by Sybil Shepard. There are a few scenes. And like, I, I guess I, to say this before I get too far into it, this movie would be so much different if like, if Bogdanovich and Platt and co decided that they wanted more animosity between like these generational characters between mother, mother and daughter, um, et cetera. Um, like those scenes would play out so differently. I, I think the empathy is, and like lack of judgment is, as we've said, like hugely important. And like watching those scenes play out, those conversations take place between, um, uh, Mrs. Farrow and JC, uh, it, it is sort of like the, the teenage animosity you get like from Sybil Shepherd, but it is also kind of like a, a sweet and sour kind of relationship. And the scene where, uh, as, as it's been mentioned, where, where JC comes back home, uh, she had just spent the evening with her mother's lover. And like, I, I, without me remembering how that scene played out, I thought it was going to be more like negatively explosive. Um, and like, you would maybe see that from a different movie. But there's, like I mentioned, like the editing of this movie, there are like maybe three kind of back and forth cuts. Um, The mother, uh, Lois Farrow, she hears the car drive away. She knows exactly what has happened. And like you get that from a few quick glances. Um, JC breaks down in tears and like Ellen Burstyn launches into like a a great, one of her many great monologues about like (laughs) the pains of existing, man. It's so, it's so fucking sad. Um, and uh, yeah, like, uh, uh, but you need that, that sort of 
that empathy is like a cushion for this movie, right? Like it, it would be almost unwatchable without it, uh, it uh, to a certain extent. And I'm certainly projecting, but like, I don't know, you kind of get it. Harry, I was going to pivot. Do you have anything else on that? Oh, I was just going to say that I really like that uh, Cody brought up that scene in particular because this movie is is also a, a very, very good look at um, what it is to be a woman in America and in any society, really. And I think that's very well encapsulated in the relationship between J.C. Farrow and um, Lois, her, her mother. Um, and it's it's heartbreaking, right? But like Lois is so disillusioned and sees so much of herself in her daughter and knows what her daughter is going through. And that, that makes this very nuanced relationship where she recognizes the worst parts of her daughter as the worst parts of her, but also understands profoundly where those parts come from. And so they have this, and, and I would argue even Sybil also, I just called her Sybil, JC, as the movie goes on, begins to recognize that recognition. And so they, they have this, this really like heart-wrenchingly beautiful dynamic where they are protecting and understanding one another in a world that they know will never understand or protect or value them. And so this is sort of like, it demonstrates this means of sort of like, like this mother's duty to her daughter increasingly is to value her at least in some capacity, the way that she was never valued, even though she knows that because she's a mother, that value will never be either reciprocated or appreciated the way it should be. Right. Like JC, JC will never really fully understand what her mother has done for her. Um, and that has to be okay. And the reason it's okay is because that's also just been true of every single other relationship that has ever happened in Lois Farrow's life, except for Sam, as she herself mentions, like nobody has ever known her value except for Sam. And like when it, when it comes to log lines about womanhood, and how women have been overlooked and underappreciated. There aren't many movies that do it better than that, right? And that's why it's so endlessly fascinating to me that that art reflected life in terms of um, Polly Platt's relationship with Bogdanovich, right down to Sybil Shepherd, by the way, which is almost too on the nose. But it, it really makes you wonder, right? Like, like here we have Bogdanovich, the 31-year-old up-and-coming auteur, and he's produced this unbelievably poignant look into what it means to be a woman. And you gotta, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to just speculate unfairly, but like, I don't know how many great movies Bogdanovich made after he broke up with Polly Platt. And he sure did make a lot of great movies when he was with Polly Platt and with, when Polly Platt was producing the shit out of all of his movies. So I you draw your own conclusions about this is, I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, it, there's a fun uh, Jenny Ackerson on a previous previous episode about targets brought up. Um, you must remember this is a series about Polly Platt. I have started listening to it and there's some fascinating backstory to a lot of this, which I won't get into here. Go listen to another podcast for once you rabid, rabid listeners of try love. Uh, I want to, I was really uh, vibing with what Cody said as well. Both of you touched on it, but Cody mentioned specifically the editing of this movie uh, in a scene between JC and Lois. 
Um, and I think that like formally is one of the strongest ways that this movie does that paralleling and contrasting between generations specifically, like rarely do you see shot reverse shot or like smash cuts or jump cuts between people of the same age, roughly. Uh, and I believe there was another piece, maybe it was a Tom, like Tom Ford was interviewed about this movie or something. But anyway, somebody mentioned how there's like very little eye to eye contact until like a scene starts to develop, uh, but specifically with regards to when like we're comparing and contrasting generations in this movie, there's, there are a couple of times. The one that I'm remembering is when um, the, the frame cuts between JC, she's um, headed, I forget where she's going, but she's in the car. Her hair is kind of waving all around and it cuts back to Ruth, Cloris Leachman's character, um, sort of coming back to life over weeks and weeks of romancing Sonny. Uh, you know what? There's there all sorts of strange moral implications to the whole thing. It's both, um, uh, unsaid in the film and confirmed by the director that um ruth's husband the coach uh is in fact a closeted homosexual and that's why their marriage has been falling apart is there neither of them is really honest with with each other about that but that's beside the point uh obviously like on the surface a fun comparison like smash cut between you know two people roughly experiencing the same emotion but for almost like nearly opposite reasons uh in at least as i saw it like in that moment and throughout the movie jc is trying to like drive toward maturity like she's like her motivation throughout a lot of the movie is to uh lose her virginity so that she can secure a marriage to bobby presumably and i'm not i don't remember if that happens in the text of the movie but later on it does uh or it's implied that that is what happens the rich kid um that invites her to her to the nudie party uh and ruth's it's comparing that against ruth's like girlish new lease on life as she's uh you know as sunny has become her new paramour but it's like those scenes even those scenes even those scenes that are like positive forward motion are tinged by that deep deep sadness like and i think it's because the movie is trying to say that it like perverts the lives of the young but that the old sorry the uh the 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 older generation begins to like recognize it as their own inside of them and maybe i'm going way outside the bounds of one point here but like even the very end of the movie where ruth sort of consoles sunny and says never you mind that like all timer ending of the movie. I think that to me was like, she's trying to put the cat back in the bag about like the terrible realization Sonny is having about being alive and about losing and about growing uh, and let him just live a stupid horny teenager's life rather than face like the crushing sadness that defines existence. Uh, But also realizing in herself in that moment that like, these are stages of life that almost everybody goes through that the situation that they're in is helping to make those harder, but that it is inherent to the human experience in a way. Uh, I don't know if that's so much a prompt, but it seems like Harry probably has some thoughts off of that. No, I, I think that you did a great job of characterizing that. And I would just like to say that like um, that crushing realization, it you're so right because it's definitive and it lingers over every shot of this movie, right? Like this movie almost, it looks post-apocalyptic at times, but it's like, it's pre-apocalyptic in the sense that the apocalypse is on its way, you know, like we're, we're all waiting for this town to be swept away by the high winds that seem to be wiping out one uh, person and place after another. And that, that realization is almost too much to reckon with. And I think that it creates this binary in people where you can either reckon with it by making it harder for other people or by sharing in it and making it easier. But it's, it's difficult either way, right? Like, like you had said that that fantastic ending is she's about to sort of open up 
to him, right? For like the first real time in the movie and like really let him into her headspace when she says, uh, never you mind. And there's some sense in which that is a real um, graceful moment of hers. And it's, it's a mercy that, that she is not going to inflict her pain on him. And this is a movie that has been so much about characters in pain seeking to eliminate that pain by inflicting it on others, right? Like we, we almost see it one-to-one. Like there's even, there's even sort of a play within a play aspect of it where when Sybil Shepherd is in her room, JC, and she has an argument with her mom, she immediately goes back to, into her room and just throws her cat. But like that is so clearly like the way that this works for these people is that like in their boredom and exhaustion and frustration, they inflict themselves on other people. And in the process, they make it harder. And the, the world is sort of characterized as an unending like cycle of, of pain and violence and pain inflicted from violence. Um, And like, it's, it's wild to me how dark and how explicitly this movie goes. I mean, like in that, in that last scene, when, um, uh, that the character who is sweeping and um, I'm so bad. Billy, at Billy, yeah. Uh, Billy, yeah. The the uh, mentally handicapped um, kid is is run over. He's run over by literally cows that are on like it's a it's a truck full of cows that are on their way to the slaughterhouse. And then our main character looks down at him and sees him laying there dead on the ground, and then looks up and sees the cows in the truck. It's like very explicit and like yeah. almost impossible to reconcile with. How do you take that? Because I maybe have a slightly different take. Right, so your thought is that there's this kind of, it's the containment, I guess, that is the important thing there. Am I misreading uh, what you're saying? Well, the, the containment and the inevitability, it's like, this is just like, it's that's the end for all of us, right? Like we're all on our way to the slaughterhouse. And like, that is sort of the, the terrifying thing that is so impossible to reconcile with. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's, it's contained, but it is a, it is a modern, it is a modern version of a symbol that used to represent everything else about this town, yeah. about American yeah. life, right? Like it, 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 it was the symbol of the cowboy and the frontier, uh-huh. right? Um, um, specifically and, and as, as it leaves, yeah, keep going. it takes another life is, is what you're saying. Well, and it's also been, it's been dumbed down, dumbed down. So it's been packaged, commercialized. It's been standardized in the way that all things yeah. in American society have, right? Like it's, it's when Ruth is, is kind of, uh, you know, monologuing at the very end and, and kind of saying her last lines. It's like, there's like a fucking like TV ad about like toothpaste or something in the background, just constantly playing just nonstop. Right. And like, that is, that is the image, right? Like these characters don't, they aren't given any of the exciting aspects of the lifestyle that like wild West films promised or that maybe used to exist in the past. And like, there was bad things with that as well. Right. But like that has now been packaged into cows and like little, you know, metal squares being jumped off to the slaughterhouse. Right. Yeah. And like they, 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 the only way they are able to escape from that is to go to see those movies uh, in theaters and, and like Billy at the top of the theater, just like stare 
uh, if the image is in front of them uh, is like a, a momentary escape from like life, right? Uh, unless you're unless you're Timothy, in which case your high school girlfriend is there, like obscuring your view, right? Um, and then even that eventually closes down because, of course. Uh, it's modern America, and that was always going to close down at some point until you have TVs now, right? You have TVs and toothpaste ads. God bless, uh, God bless the TVs and toothpaste ads, by the way. Shout outs. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad we're kind of landing on the 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 end of the movie, the Billy scene where he's lying in the road. It was around this time where I, I got to thinking uh, or, or like mulling over the this sort of vague question of like what leads people to do things like what specifically leads these people to do things like it's certainly not an excess of choice it's probably more of like a a lack thereof situation right like the way it's painted it's you stay here in this town um and like you make do you can if you're rich you might have other options to you in in bigger metropolitan cities at the time otherwise like you go off to war like that Dwayne's arc uh, Jeff Bridges character's arc in this movie is he cannot be with JC he cannot be with the the girl he wants to be with so he moves and then he like eventually uh I don't want to mischaracterize that it just like joins the military like he goes off to war uh and like like that's like that's his story and like his character in particular has uh, i don't know why it stood out to me so much but like he has uh i mean there there are a few se- sequences um especially when he's attempting to be intimate with jc where he says a lot of like i don't know what happened but like outside of that sequence as well it, you know it's just, oh, it's the it's the damnedest thing like he's one of the many living examples of the, in this movie of life uh, to take a long-winded way back to it like the like the world and life just happening, you know, like the world is just happening to these people. And like on where Sonny is sort of like the, the centerpiece for this movie. And like the world is happening to him just as it's happening, just as it happened to Billy one last time. And like Sonny's at the point where like his, his, like the choices he has, like the few choices he has, like those are getting struck out one by one. The reasons he has to stay here, um, like are, are they're vanishing fast and like just the heartbreaking scene of him trying, uh, or like making a go at leaving and then reconsidering and coming back was like, that really cut a hole in me because it's just, like, it's so, it's so futile, right? Like, like what else are these people like, you know, what, what else are they going to do? Uh, and that's like, that's kind of what we're left with. It, it's, it's, so it's like a, it's like a, it's like a weird, like 1971 movie version of like a pop punk song. Like, yeah, like, or like a like a like a third wave ska song. Uh, exactly. Gotta leave this town, like that kind of shit. Uh, but it's, I like it better here than the pop punk. I think. Um, that's fair, man. Yeah, Cody, you characterized a lot of that really well. Um, I was I was gonna say another point about um, uh, Ruth Popper, Cloris Leachman's character, but um, first I. This is maybe a, a bit of a head-ass point, so apologies. But like, you're so right about the way that this movie it shows the the generations, and it gives us this contextual understanding to understand where they came from and what's happening to them, while also making sure that we realize that they themselves don't see what we see. Right? We have this almost godlike omniscient perspective where our camera follows all of these people and sees all of these important sequences in the sequences in which we see them in order to receive the information to come to the conclusions that we do and in that way 
the last picture show is a picture show, right? In that it communicates information to a point and for a purpose and it is directed. These people don't have that, right? That That's the problem. That's the difference between picture shows and reality is that these people are not equipped to understand the sort of deterministic generational things that brought them to this place, the, these tragic conclusions. And so they can only recreate those same problems over and over again. It's, um, I, I'm sorry, this is the head ass part, but like, oh, no. I, just, I just read a hundred years of solitude and it's, it reminded me a lot of that where it's like the whole, the whole point of 100 years of solitude is that like these things are cyclical and they repeat because nobody understands that they're repeating because they can't, because they're just people. Right. And, and they have lifespans. Um, and that reminded me a lot of this where, where it's just like all of these people don't have another chance because they're creatures doomed to 100 years of solitude here on earth. Right. Um, and then the other thing I was going to say about Cloris Leachman in, in her character is that I find that ending so fascinating, right? Because of the, the grace that she has in, in sort of saving Bobby. I, we, I think we don't know. We're not meant to know what she was about to say when she breaks down. But to me, it was sort of this, this like suggestion that, um, that I think Sonny had sort of been, chauvinistically clinging to a little bit that he really thought that, that like Cloris Leachman's character loved him, right. That like Ruth Popper was like in love with him the way that he was in love with JC, that he was her JC. And like, obviously that is not the case. Like she, she was a lonely person who reached out to somebody who she thought would have enough compassion to at least meet her halfway, uh, kind of, but that, that desperation and, and sadness was what created the sort of statutory rape like arrangement that they had. And I like, I think that that was the thing that she avoided telling him because that would have been so crushing. And instead she let him sort of preserve this idea of himself. Right. Even though, as she said, right before, like I've turned that corner now it's gone completely. You've ruined it because he wasn't there for her. She still gives him the opportunity to believe that he was this person. Right. And that's that's a really fascinating um, end point for this movie that like actually there, there's sort of an argument at, in this movie that's so much about the the damage that illusions create and the damage that our disillusionment can inflict on one another. There is a last minute sort of argument about how some generations they can help preserve the, the others. Um, illusions at least for a little while it it's very uh boy i'm I'm really you can tell i really like this movie because i'm making a bunch of literary references but um it's very catcher in the rye in that way i guess you know where it's sort of like like she she protects him from something at the end there yeah you're mentioning i how do you square her upsetness with Sonny at the end when he you know sort of comes quote unquote crawling back she's very she's belligerent with him for abandoning her essentially how do you square that against like the notion that she didn't actually like that that there it was only situational between them um you know like she responds with kindness in the end she responds with you know a shoulder to cry on and and empathy but she's very upset in that moment is that speaking to just like the movie's overall statement of reacting responding with kindness to cold to a cold situation yeah, I mean like I think that that there's something to be said about 
that that's really maybe the most herself she is for this entire movie when she finally lets loose from that. Mm-hmm. And she walks herself back from it, right? But the reason she walks herself back is because he's there. And like he came back explicitly to do that, to take that pain that she was about to level on him, right? Like he knew that that coming back in there and asking for the coffee, she was going to erupt on him or at least not be happy with him, right? And he sat there in silence and then took her hand afterwards and accepted the thing that she was doing to him, right? And I think that that's kind of the ultimate place that these characters end up, right? Like, like Sonny could have just said, fuck it and left town, but he realizes that that would have been um, avoiding his responsibility and the duty that he had to make up for the pain that he had inflicted, right? That all Mm. of these characters are compromised and we shouldn't judge them, but it does give them some sort of, there, there is a duty there or not a duty, but, but a um, something that they can do. Right. And I think that ultimately he comes of age by realizing that he still has that part to play and that he can actually be an alleviation of suffering where he once inflicted it by understanding it and being there to sort of bear witness to it and share it. Even if he can't really alleviate it, he can at least bear witness to and share it. Right. And I think that, um, Cloris Leachman's character, Ruth ultimately sort of understands his attempt imperfect and stupid as it is, because let's face it, Sonny is a a child, you know, he's like, he's a teenager. I think he's 18 or 19. And like, he can't, he can't give her what she wants. He can't value her the way that she deserves to be valued because he's not the guy for that. But that guy is never going to be here. And I think that's what she realizes at the end of this movie. Right. And, you know, we're talking about teenagers, you know, like what teenager is the guy, right? Like there's there's a certain amount of self delusion going on in, on all sides, which again, just like really masterfully put together. Um, I, personally love the idea of rewatching this movie specifically to see how like the Sam slash Lois slash Abilene, the, uh, her uh, JC's mom's lover that, that how that like love triangle plays out in particular, just because there's, you know, it's not really like confirmed that Lois was, uh, you know, once in love with Sam, that his monologue at the lake is in fact about Lois is not confirmed until the end, but I would really love to go back and see like what pieces and parts lead up to that, how it builds that, how it leverages on that knowledge. Um, but I honestly don't like, I don't know if I could take it. This movie is just very like, it left me a little empty. I, I forget who, but somebody in the movie, it might be the the waitress at the diner mentions that like, everything's just flat and sad here. Uh, so I don't know about going back to it, but there's like, there's a, a rich vein, I think underneath what we, what I've seen. This was my first time seeing it. And I, no, I'll be doing it short justice if I don't see it again, but so soon. Hmm. I, uh, I gotta say, maybe this is just me, but I, I didn't find this the hardest watch. Maybe I'm just a sicko, you know, You're just uh, but like different, you know, well, I'm like, I'm acknowledging it's like, obviously a very depressing movie, but it's a movie that I acknowledge as depressing and I do not feel depressed in the same manner. Maybe that's kind of a, a weird thing, but like, I do, I did think it was weird that for like a movie that's, about high school and like barely post high school people uh, in like a small town and gossip and like people going behind each other's backs and all that, um, that it doesn't, we talked about this, I think with like 10 things I hate about you, but like that kind of uh, drama is like my least favorite thing in the universe. And I like, I hate the feeling of it. And this movie didn't give me that feeling. Like there's, it's, it's, this movie feels like weirdly foundational for a lot of like, 
young adult like uh, cinema and whatnot. Um, or at least it's, mm-hmm. I don't know about foundational, but it's like, it, it is weirdly in the same vein as a lot of that stuff, but it doesn't have the same kind of melodramatic uh, feeling to it. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, so but then, I didn't, I didn't feel crushed I, I, by this film, I guess. Okay. How do you feel about blue velvet in respect <laughs> or in, in response to this? There's, there's even a scene I just had, to <laughs> there's a yeah. scene in which, in which blue velvet is specifically playing on the radio. I don't know whose version, but blue velvet plays in this movie. And it's like, okay, that's a pretty clear line that they're, that they're building, that David Lynch must've been building from this movie to that. Right. Maybe. I mean, Maybe, maybe I think maybe responding to the same stuff. I guess I don't know. Maybe I should Google that uh, to see if he, he's ever said anything about it. But I don't, I, like I don't think idea. so. Yeah, um, I think there I think is specifically the idea that that David Lynch saw this movie and he was like, "No, actually, all of those white boys are are going to kill the world and everybody who inhabits <laughs> it." And I should make a movie about that. Yeah, I mean, so this this movie is about uh, like. This movie is about like a a, a once kind of um, a once kind of mythical area that is kind of degraded into uh, being a shadow of its former self, and that how that impacts the people. And like Blue Velvet is like uh, a seemingly perfect uh, like society that has like a bunch of worms living under it, right? So right, it's right. like myth, kind of a different, continued, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a different take on like the American dream and the American myth. I think that that. Lynch and Bogdanovich or yeah, whoever you want to attribute Platt, but also the, the author uh, of the book, um, McMurtry or whatever. Uh, I, I think that whoever is kind of mainly in charge of that kind of feeling in this film probably has a quite a bit different take on, um, on American life, uh, than Lynch does. I think that's probably partially just where Lynch kind of grew up and where he was living. Um, but it's an interesting comparison for sure. Thank you. Thank you. I wear that crown proudly. Uh, are we near the end of today's podcast? Can I head into final thoughts or are we on any last, uh, any ideas? Um, I, you mentioned, um, really quick, we didn't talk about him a lot, which I think is important, but I, is it Ebeline? Uh, the, the, yeah, um, Abeline. Abeline. Yeah. Uh, he's a, he's a really fascinating sort of character. He's like maybe this movie's one unambiguous monster, right? Um, and yeah. it's it's really interesting how this movie demonstrates how his uh, crimes also stem from the same ideas, right? Where he he works for uh, JC's father, which means that he's obviously not as wealthy as he would like to be. They're both oil men, but he's working on the rig, um, and he is taking out his anger at not having the life that he wants first by. Um, cavorting with his boss's wife and then by seducing uh, his boss's daughter. And it just like, I think that it, it's, in it, he's an important character in that this movie is demonstrating the spectrum of sort of violence to compassion response to your own pain. And he represents the ultimate sort of like one end where it's like, this is a guy who hates his life, who does not have what he thinks he deserves, and that he is using that entitlement and that spurned entitlement to just crush and harm and uh, deny other people their own self-determination as best he can, right? And it, it's just like like that that inner anguish becomes this outward facing rage that he makes manifest however he wants. And I think it's a, it's a really compelling um, demonstration of how unambiguous villains can be made unambiguous villains while still recognizing that there's something 
there that is understandable and human, right? Even if like, you know, this is a movie all about sort of like getting beyond judgment and seeing where actions come from. I think that that is the one character that we can pretty categorically dismiss as a monster. (laughs) And I think that it's really interesting that the movie goes out of its way to, to demonstrate that its sort of thesis for human behavior is applicable even to people like that, right? That there are people in this world who are just terrible, but like we can even understand how they came to be that way. Yeah. And like I said, the background there of the love triangle really does add depth and character to that as well. You know, he's still like, it's okay that he's shuffled into the bad guy role because he like, like you said, he's unambiguously the monster, but there is even to that, you know, even to that Bogdanovich and the writer's felt like there was there it was worth digging into the that character you know to instead of like having him do something outwardly and malevolent and that changes the course of the whole story just like giving his character depth through the rest of the characters uh it it should be noted that there uh so there is a director's cut of this movie which is actually the the version that we watched and i'm sure it's the version that will be screened at the trilon um and is is kind of now the kind of official cut if you, if you get the bogdanovich you know, uh, cut if you will the, that, that has they, been they released the bogdanovich cut uh and uh, it it has about i don't know maybe uh, 10 minutes uh, uh of film more and the kind of two main scenes that are added one of them is in fact the the uh, the sex scene in the pool hall that was originally not there. Um, I think the, the really? thinking about it and not seeing it, I do think that, um, well, the scenes before and after, so it's like implied what happened. Right. But the sure. scene where, uh, he drops her off is still in there. And I think the movie like maybe would weirdly work still with that. Um, but, but it's interesting that that was uh, an addition for the director's cut. Yeah, um, just wanted to hurt us very badly one more time by inserting <laughs> into one of the saddest and scariest and worst sex scenes of anything ever. Yeah, really. Yeah. Hard, to, also, hard like, to watch. There aren't a whole lot of gifts or things that preceded this movie for me in my mind, but like one of the images I had seen is of her fingers curling through the billiards pocket as she's as you know the, the deed is being done, like it's wild to me that that wasn't in the original release of the movie. It seems like seminal now. Yeah. That's, that's what Wikipedia was telling me when I was researching this earlier. Um, my, yeah, uh, crazy. my, my last, Oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry. I was, no. was going to change it up. So, okay. I was just going to say the last thing about that is that in case you wanted to, um, be very assured of the intentionality of this movie and this movie's disillusionment. Uh, they originally wanted the country singer, Jimmy Dean to play that role. So like this fucking Whoa. symbol of like Americana. Yeah, I think there's a lot around specifically with the way that the country music is used uh, and, and country music and folk music uh, specifically kind of played in a more commercialized setting, kind of similar to the the, the cattle car at the end. Um, I, I think that there's a lot that feels very intentional there. Um, I, my last point was going to be around kind of the intentional nature of a lot of the the usage of uh, mu- not only just music, but also kind of uh, films in this. We haven't talked about this being a too much of this being a movie about films in American society. Uh, I mean, that, that kind of is what it is at its core uh, in, in kind of a weird way. I don't think it's like too front and center about it, but like it's called The Last Picture Show. Like you can do some of the math there. Um, and I, I did think it was, you know, it's kind of easy to, to point out, but like, you know, the, the films that are shown uh, on display at the, the movie theater, 
kind of the main ones. There's there's Red River, uh, which is a Howard Hawks film uh, that stars John Wayne. Um, that is like pretty instrumental to the end of this film, but also even kind of earlier uh, in the film, uh, there's a scene outside of the movie theater where um, they're putting up a poster for Sands of Iwo Jima, which is uh, another John Wayne film, right? Um, and I think John Wayne is kind of being very purposefully used uh, in this manner as like the symbol of like classic American uh, filmmaking. Um, it does feel, we, we haven't talked about this yet, but like Bogdanovich was um, very similar to a lot of like French filmmakers uh, like Truffaut and, and Godard who were first, uh, if not academics and at least professionals like studying film, they were film critics, uh, like professional film critics. And then they diverted or kind of switched to making films themselves. Um, Let's go. Bogdanovich did the same thing. He was originally a film critic uh, and, and much like the new wave directors who, who often came from film criticism, this American kind of new wave uh, director also came from film criticism. And this feels like a movie that is commenting on films. And a lot of that might be polyplat as well. Um, but uh, it, th- I think a lot of those little details are what makes this movie feel like so obviously like a directed movie uh, in a movie that like feels so intentional is that this is a guy who like knows movies, knows Americans relationship to film and, and how that like reflects American culture. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it, it feels like kind of subtle, even though it's like not, but like it feels more subtle. It feels like it could have been a lot more obvious and obnoxious, but it, it I think it works. Yeah. And, I mean, I think it's all that more pointed that Bogdanovich is uh, another movie that was released or rather the documentary that was released in 1971 was his documentary uh, uh, directed by John Ford, right? Well, his, you know, there's still a lot of, um, a lot that wasn't said about Polly Platt's involvement in that, but like a staple of, I guess, the old guard of Hollywood uh, sort of being approached by ostensibly one of the members of its, of new Hollywood, right? Yeah. And it just like it, I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron, because it's also really fascinating to place this in Bogdanovich's career, right? Like we've we've already talked about Targets, which is also a movie that is so intimately interested in uh, the role of film and sort of myth making and imagery in defining and changing the course of human life, right? And this movie is just like that. This is the last picture show, right? It's it's about the end of illusionment, right? The end of. Uh, the the sort of narrative that is put together and placed in front of you the way that picture shows can, the way that this picture show can, and realizing that those narratives can never be reality and what happens, right? And I think you're I think you're right. It's that's a really great point to make about Bogdanovich is that from the beginning he was a he was a person who was fundamentally interested in movies about movies and in playing in the medium and space. And I think that this is maybe the best uh, example of that. Although, you know, later tonight we're going to watch uh, Paper Moon at the Trilon shoutouts, and so you'll get to see another example of that. But it is that is a really good point, right? Like that, it's it's really important to think about Bogdanovich on those terms, in my opinion. And so, like, even though this movie is about a lot of things, um, it is also about that, definitely. All right. My final point about this movie came up last night, and yes, I am going to ask it, and we can remove it if it turns out too blue. Uh, But for some reason, I forget which one of you felt it necessary to ask, what would you do if you got a boner during the skinny dipping scene in this movie? Like, what do you do in that moment? And who was it who said that they wouldn't? They just wouldn't? I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't. Your 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 look. Your your brain. Everybody has awkward. Like, oh, what if that? No, your brain's got you, bro. It's too awkward in that situation. Anybody, unless you're like the coolest dude ever, you're too awkward. Your it's not gonna happen. I don't. I just don't believe it. I I'm different. I feel. I don't feel confident that you're that you're telling the truth. <laughs> I do not we're think that this is cutting this out. I will not have this in the podcast. <laughs> oh, so you're editing this one? Thank you for offering. <laughs> I have to. Okay. Uh, well, that was my last thought. Anybody else with final thoughts before we head into uh, this final segment that will not be named? Look, uh, the, the thing was, go ahead, I, Harry. I've never been skinny dipping. Uh, that probably doesn't come as a surprise to our listeners. And so I was just, I was very concerned about the logistics. All right. That's all I'm going to say is that Sybil Shepard was making a show of undressing in her awkward way up there. She was doing this explicitly to be sexualized by the people at this party. I just don't understand how that would work. All right. That's, that's what I, that's why I asked I, the question in the first place. Jason, I, I do think get why, cut this out. I don't think, I don't get why everybody else there is just like, creepily waiting like bogdanovich put some it's, it's put some hank williams on or something fucking rich people are the worst that was bacchanalia that was awful but not even cool, shit like, going on on screen yeah fucking tinto brass uh on display i am scandalized <laughs> the uh, honestly the greatest part about this is harry was in the clear uh, he he refuted the prompt. He could have even said no comment or I oh, don't it was know. Be super the, clean. I was playing to the, remove it. The fact that he came back though, oh, there's nothing more incriminating uh in the world. Um, so maybe we will keep this in. I I my favorite line from our our watch our, our simul watch uh yesterday uh was from one Jason Daphnis uh at, referring to the characters. Everyone's too horny to have sex. Uh, so we're we're talking about log lines for this movie. Yeah, I feel it like, like blew my mind. I was like, I had to like yeah. take a step back and think about stuff. That's like a that's like something Almodovar would say about one of his movies. Also, I have no exactly. intention of explaining or elaborating on that. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't warrant any explanation. It it is a perfect, a perfect piece. All right, uh, then Harry, you and I have a little bit of work to do to introduce our final segment. I would be happy to, Jason. It's the final segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Wow, beautiful. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for that generation-defining introduction. Uh, this week, we'll be dipping into the life and career of one Peter Bogdanovich, since he uh, occupies a portion of this Pauly Platt series at the Trilon Cinema. Uh, tickets on sale, if you feel comfortable going, uh, then do that and wear a mask uh you goobers um so yeah buckle up uh because these are the noties you son of a bitch and jason just for the show notes uh i'm saying it like son of apostrophe o v i c h so just so that okay thank you yeah as clean as possible uh but yes we will be running through some uh peter bogdanovich factoids what i'll do is present each bit one at a time after each statement i will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond you'll get a point for every correct answer and the person with the most points at the end wins as always trivia mafia rules apply here so use your noodles not your googles uh with that unless anybody's got anything we can uh we can go ahead and jump in Okay, let's go ahead and jump in. For our first question, 
we are going to invoke, uh, against my better judgment, the Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes. So I ask you all, what percentage of works directed by Peter Bogdanovich abide by the Rashomon rule? And for any contestants here today who want to have uh, some training wheels for this question, I'll just note that we're going by letterboxed credits. And even though I did specify works, uh, I can confirm there are no short films included in those uh, in those letterbox credits. No, like, you know, by definition, short films. So with that out of the way, hopefully that clears up anything. Um, we'll start with Aaron. What is your guess again for the percentage of Bogdanovich featurinos that abide by the Rashomon rule? Um, I'm trying to remember if targets was, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just uh, 0%. Try it. We'll try it out. We'll try it out. Zero uh, percent says Aaron. Harry, what's your guess? I'll guess twenty-five percent. Twenty-five says Harry and Jason. What do you got? Seventeen percent. Seventeen percent says Jason. Of the twenty-six credits that list Bogdanovich as director, again using Letterboxd as our yardstick. Two of them come in at or under 88 minutes. Targets is included. Uh, I think that uh, the, the the prehistoric one, uh, the, what, oh. what is the name of that movie? That's the other one. Yeah. That's the other one. I, that that can't, yeah. I, I could nitpick some like, eh, it wasn't credited, but yeah, that's be it. Yeah, okay, okay. It, what Targets was like, what, get, 86 let, then? How many minutes? Yeah. Go, we're going by, yeah. Yeah, we're going by Letterboxd. Yeah, uh, I think Targets comes in at exactly... 88. Uh, so not longer than Rashomon. Uh, the same length as Rashomon. And that gets us to... A ruling about seconds. Uh, 88 minutes no. and how many seconds? Okay, fine. No. Letterboxed rules. They do not use seconds. Um, and uh, I'm sure some of you might ask for seconds uh, on that on that feast that was that question because uh, some of us came up empty-handed points-wise. Aaron, however, uh, got closest. Uh, 7.69% is the percentage. I should probably say that. Uh, so 0% ended up being closest. Valiant guesses all around. Uh, Bogdanovich uh, trending towards long, longer features, uh, which is... I forgot that he kind of became a hack in his later career. Oh, oh we'll, we'll talk I about it uh, a little bit. Yeah, we'll get into it a little bit. Honestly, characterizing it, I'll just, I'll go on the record saying characterizing it as, you know, once Polly Platt was sort of out of his uh, personal and uh, personal life and career, uh, marking kind of the downward trend. Look, the writing's on the wall, folks. Uh, But next up. That's all I'm saying is it adds up. It does add up, uh, as will these points. We've got four more questions here. Aaron, uh, like I said, got the point for that one. Number two here, uh, this next question. If my records are correct, which is to say, if IMDb is correct, Mr. Bogdanovich, uh, Mr. Bogdanovich, sure, has been in contention for a total of 34 film-related awards over the course of his career. How, and we're not doing percentages, how many of those 34 award nominations were for his achievements in acting? Aaron? You're talking specifically about Bogdanovich not in his films. Correct. Yep, Bogdanovich, Uh, the man, not... His movies. You want me to give a percentage or a number? A number. Uh, Uh, Six. Six out of 34. Harry, what you got? I'm going to say, oh man, two. I'm going to regret it, but I'm going to say two. Two says Harry. Jason, what do you say? Four. Oh, I'm not going to regret it. 
Uh, no, you won't. Um, because three of the 34 awards he has been Ooh. up for were for acting achievements. Um, and b- b- I believe the rules, as we've done in the past, mean uh, that both Harry and Jason get a point for that question. Sorry, Aaron. Um, but but yeah, I can list them really quick because uh, they're kind of interesting, I guess. And maybe if people are interested in <laughs> the acting prowess of Peter Bogdanovich, you can watch them. Uh, but he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a Feature Film for his role in Reborn, which came out in 2018 at the Fantastic Horror Film Festival in San Diego. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role in The Other Side of the Wind, which also came out in 2018. And this was at the Vancouver Film Critics Circle. And finally, uh, the marquee nomination. He was nominated for Best Guest Actor in a drama series through the Online Film and Television Association for his role in The Sopranos. The Sopranos, ladies and germs. Uh, and now you know the reason why I included that uh, in in the trivs. Uh, we are moving along here. Everybody's all tied up. One point apiece. We're moving into question number three here. Uh, there was a time wherein, you know, in my head, I started calling him Bogey because it's shorter, but Bogey is more of a Humphrey Bogart thing. Um, so I'm just going to like cautiously, I'm going to say Bogey here, but don't get confused. There was a time wherein Bogey was a, a highly sought after filmmaker and Naturally, along the way, he had to turn down some projects he was offered. Which one of these films was not was not a directing gig that Bogdanovich reportedly was offered and subsequently turned down? So two of these are uh, reportedly projects that he was offered and turned down. One of them is just, a, a, you know, it's there to mislead you. Um, so the three movies here, we've got One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Godfather, and Chinatown. So, Aaron, which one of those is uh, is not like the others? Which one of those was never offered and subsequently turned down by Mr. Bogey? I am going to go with Chinatown. Chinatown, says Aaron. Harry, what's your guess? Yeah, unfortunately, I think I also have to do Chinatown because didn't, uh, what's his name, the child rapist also write that? Maybe I'm Polanski. Um, also, what do you think about Boggy instead of Bogey? How do you? How does that strike you? It it feels weird, but I think that's mostly just because Bogey already exists. You know what I mean? Like Boggy feels like a, a, a rift in the Matrix or something. I'll give it a try here whenever it feels appropriate. Um, uh, Jason, with regards to to Boggy, <laughs> oh boy, uh, what's what's your guess here? All things being equal, I'm going to guess The Godfather. Jason says, the godfather. Uh, the correct answer here is A, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, yeah, reportedly, Damn. godfather in Chinatown, Bogdanovich was offered and turned down. I don't That's have a lot of details beyond that. Um, yeah, you can maybe I look really, them up. I really wish that he had directed Chinatown because I kind of like that movie a lot. Sorry, everyone. Uh, no, I feel you. And I would have also have liked to see that, uh, that spin on it. Um, I should note, there are plenty of other films that, uh, that Boggy has opted not to direct over the years, ones that he was offered. One other movie we can shout out is 1980s Popeye. Uh, and I bet Boggy regrets letting that one slip through his fingers. Um, RIP that version of Popeye. Uh, in any case, so no points, um, uh, given that round, everybody's still tied up at one apiece. We've got two more questions here. For number four, um, I'm just going to take this time to say, I'm not going to lie, trying to find decent trivia for Boggy isn't uh, the easiest task. It checks a lot of weird boxes where he's had a long career, but only a wedge of his filmography is really um, filled with well-known bangers. Uh, Only a portion of it is good uh, by our standards. Uh, And he was at his peak during an era that uh, predates those of us here. 
Having said all that, I was able to dig up this question here. Um, this was kind of the, the last one I did. I know it's number four of five, but it, it was the last one I put together, which means you can probably guess what our last question will entail. In any case, the question itself, one of Bogdanovich's unmade films uh, was to be a remake of a film that we previously did an episode on. I'll offer, again, three choices. Which film uh, of these three was Boggy reportedly set to remake but never did? And the three films in contention are Detour, Ninochka, Kind Hearts, and Coronets. Aaron, which one of those uh, ended up being an unmade oh remake God. by Boggy? Oh, I got no fucking idea. Um, I didn't see Ninochka, so maybe I'm shooting in the dark, but yeah, Ninochka, I guess. Nanachka for Aaron, what for Harry? Uh, I would rather have seen a Detour remake, so I'm going to say Kind Hearts and Coronets, I guess. Gotcha. And Jason? I'm going to say Detour. One of us has to be right. Um, one of you is right. Uh, I'll tell you a quick little one-line story. Once upon a time, Peter Bogdanovich was apparently going to remake Detour, Detour, Ladies and Germs. Um, I couldn't, again, find a whole lot of details I beyond that. I so I, with my gut. I shouldn't have been so you, disillusioned. Yeah. Hey, that's the victory. Okay. We're all learning. The victory is about to take a detour from Aaron to me. Ooh, um, I was going to say use your imagination uh, as to what that remake would look like, but uh, soon y'all won't have to use your imagination to find out who uh, wins the noties. We've got one more question here. We've got everybody on the board uh, with at least one, Jason uh, leading the pack with two. And for our final question, similar to what we've done in previous games, I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by Peter Bogdanovich, a.k.a. Boggy, as he's been called famously. Two of these utterances will be for real, again, allegedly. And one will be fake. Your task is to pick out the fake one. So I'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you to pick out the imposter afterward. Uh, so here's the first quote. Marlon Brando changed everything for actors. After him, everyone wanted to be Marlon. No one, uh, no one wanted to be a type. They all wanted to display versatility in every role. So that's the first quote. Second quote here. I don't go to see too many comedies because I saw Knocked Up, uh, 2007's Knocked Up, which I thought was ridiculous. She would never go with that guy, even if she was dead drunk. It's a movie by people, I guess, who have wish fulfillment issues. <laughs> so that's the second quote. Uh, and the third and final quote, they don't have personalities, so they can't be stars. Do me a Brad Pitt impression. Do me a George Clooney impression. So those are the three quotes. Um... Aaron, which one of those? What's yeah, that? He's, it's like Boggy's freaking energy in those quotes. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boggy's um, on a warpath. Here's the thing: I, I, for my own personal sanity, I have to believe that the second one is correct. Uh, so I, I cannot go for that one. Uh, I'm gonna guess that the first one wasn't about Brando. I guess so. I guess the first one is what I'm going with. All right, first one says Aaron. Uh, Harry, what's your guess? Uh, cynicism and disillusionment have gotten me this far in life, so I'm going to go with the second one. I don't think he said that about the film Knocked Up. Gotcha. Okay, and Jason? Uh, rounded out with the third one. The third one says Jason. Uh, the imposter is indeed C, the third one. Um, and so here's what we're going to do. is you might have guessed, I swapped in two different actor names into that quote. And before I reveal the actual quote, I'm, I'm going to open it up to you fellas. Each of you gets one guess 
to name one of the two actual actors allegedly cited by Bogdanovich in this quote. If you, uh, if your guess aligns with one of the actors who's in the quote, you will get a bonus point. So Jason gets the point for guessing the correct quote. Um, Aaron, do you got a guess of an actor who is actually cited in this bo- uh, boggy quote? Uh, I'm trying to think of like blockbuster stars who you couldn't do an impression of. And I'm actually having a yeah. hard time. Tom Cruise that is, is like really an easy... hard. I'm going to go Matt Damon. Matt Damon seems like the perfect hard to impersonate uh, blockbuster actor. Gotcha. So Matt Damon for Aaron. Uh, Harry, who's your guess? What are you, what are you talking about? You, I don't think Matt Damon's that hard to do at all. You just have to kind of take a Boston accent and make everything sound really kind dog of dog shit. Really bad. Really just terrible. You know what? <laughs> like, it's, like, what are you doing? Uh, I don't, I don't know. Um, let me, um, fucking, um, I just gave you Ben Affleck. I was do, do I, ben Affleck. so easy to do an impression of dog. What are you talking about? Just do it. I'm, I'm not going to do Ben Affleck. Uh, I'll do Ben Affleck. I, I'm, I'm taking Ben Affleck right now because that's what I was going to choose anyway. All right. Jason says Ben Affleck. Damn. I'll do Tom Cruise since Aaron said Tom Cruise. All right. So with those guesses locked in, I will now read the actual version of the quote. <clears throat> they don't have personalities, so they can't be stars. Do me a Tom Cruise impression. Do me a Tom Hanks impression. What's up? Oh, damn it. Tom, Tom Hanks is no, the easiest. Two of the most impressionable yeah. people. Like, two of the most easily impressed. Tom Cruise is like a like a all-timer if you're getting into impressions, I feel. Yeah, you just do the Oprah thing. You jump up on the uh, chair. Yeah, you get and really excited. Yeah, of course. Well, well, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's imitating the moment. That's not imitating the actor, right? I did no. I did a I did a Tom Cruise impression once that it was, God, was really popular. I ripped off my shirt and flipped upside down on a, a six foot steel pole. Did it effortlessly, and everybody's like, "That's a great Tom Cruise." I hung outdoors I on an airplane, and uh, you know they said, "Wow, that's a great impression." So it's not hard to do. Really ruined uh, the uh, eighth birthday party. Yeah, that same thing <laughs> happened to my. It happened to my buddy, Aaron. Uh, but those are the noties. Uh, if my calculations are correct, Harry getting the bonus point. Uh, that puts us at Jason with three, Harry with two, Aaron at one. All I have to say uh, in any case is thanks for playing, you sons of a bitches. When did, Harry, when did you and I start letting Jason win? The, like, I just don't, did we make it? I, I, no, honestly, I know what it was this time. It's not Jason. Yeah. It's just the fact that he was last. He won by the judo rules. He That's used a good our point. point against us. It I was always, less, yeah. less our victor, or his victory than our defeat. All he had to do was wait for us to make mistakes. Harry, which you make is a good point. Strategy. We should strip him of all of his victories uh, on Cody's noties and give them to me, I think. Look, I was I'm first. Just, so. if you, if you last name, alphabetical order, I think we'd see these come out a different way. That's all yeah. I'll say. Yeah. I look forward to the winner takes all edition of Cody's noties in which we nullify all previous records for the year in one final bash of the hardest trivia. Next week on Cody's noties, the three of us are put onto a platform suspended uh, 45 feet above the ground and we fight each other with nothing but our bare fists and whoever lives uh, uh, is the winner of Cody's noties. Oh, that would be a dream come true. Don't tempt me. Yeah, Cody Cody's, Cody's been die. trying to be Jigsaw for this entire podcast. He's been trying to dethrone me oh, since day one. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Try Love. This has been our episode about the Last Picture Show. You can see it at the Trilon by going to trilon.org and get a t- excuse me getting tickets. You can also listen to our episode about Targets, uh, another movie that's been playing at the Trilon. We'll be seeing Paper Moon at 
the trial on later today. This is incidental knowledge, but uh, just means, hey, there's a series going on. If you want to check out movies uh, in which Polly Platt had a hand, um, a lot of which are including the Bogdanovich films playing the trial on right now, uh, grab a ticket. Uh, see something at the Trilon. Join the Trilon Club. There's a special secret showing coming soon. Uh, so become a excuse me, become a become a member of the Trilon Club. Get cool merch and other fun ways to support the Trilon. Uh, and you know, pour one out for the Uptown. Uh, not to bring it back to that bummer, but it's very thematically appropriate and uh, and it really does suck in the moment uh, and it's fresh. So in the meantime. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema across all social media. My name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, pouring on the bummers here. I wanted to give Chaco one last shout out on the pod. Uh, if you're listening to this on the day it's re- the episode is released or any time afterward, um, Chaco will be no longer in my uh, under my roof. He is off to brighter and greener pastures in the wondrous city of uh, Portland. Um, I went there once. It, it seems like a nice, good place. Um, so he'll be in good hands, uh, with a friend of mine who he actually belongs to. Uh, he has greatly enjoyed, um, getting into antics whenever he sees me, uh, on a microphone in my living room, like, uh, uh like a, a silly dumbass. Um, uh, be good and kind to your pets, everyone. And also for those with, uh, try love bingo cards, maybe just like update that space or refresh your card, you know, let it DM us and we'll get you a new one. Um, but, uh, in any case, I've been Cody Narvison and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Cody, I gotta say, I'm almost not quite, but almost as sad about Chaco leaving us as I am about uh, the Uptown. I've really, really enjoyed your uh, correspondence with him, and I'm going to miss it terribly. Uh, we love you, Chaco, and we love you, Cody. Um, is there anything else we can do to shit on Peter Bogdanovich uh, while we're at it? I feel like we came down kind of hard on him, especially given that we all kind of think this is maybe one of the best movies ever made that he directed. Obviously, it was really Polly Platt. That's what I've been trying to say all this time. What else can we say about this motherfucker? Like, uh, I mean, he did a any- City movie in 1988. Idiot. Stupid move. Terrible movie. I'm sure his movie was terrible, too. Uh, funny glasses. He looks funny in those things. He doesn't look good. You don't look good, Bogdanovich. Um, the, as- the, ascot was over- the Ascot was overplayed by the time that he got famous. It was gone. Yeah, it was out easily. of vogue. And, and pretentious. He looks like he's trying to be a director, which of course he was. Fucking boggy. Uh, I've been Harry. Um, Peter Bogdanovich can find me outside. Um, everybody else can find me on Twitter at Shtaki Harry. Thanks. Uh, I don't really have a passionate thing to follow. Uh, my name's Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter on a Twitter break at RB, please. Just going to keep rolling that one forward. Uh, I really yeah. like this new twang you've got. I don't, do I, do I have a twang? I don't know what you're talking about. You can Jason. find me on Twitter at Jason, RB, please. You can shut your damn mouth or I'll yeah, shut it yeah, for you. I'm just doing a hand kill again. Anyway, uh, yep. <sighs> you kids ever heard of tackling? Can I free your doubtful mind and melt your cold, cold heart? You'll never know how much it hurts to see you sit and cry. You know you need and want my love, yet you're afraid to try. Why do you run and hide from life? To try it just ain't smart. 
Why can't I free your doubtful mind And melt your cold, cold heart There was a time when I believed That you belonged to me But now I know your heart is shackled To a memory The more I learn to care for you The more we drift apart Why can't I free your doubtful mind And melt your cold, cold heart 